Thank you for joining us at Conversations to Inspire. Our guest today is Ken Dombrowski. Ken is a master hypnotist and life coach, and he has been helping people through his practice called Love Your Life Hypnosis. Ken is going to take us through his journey of how he became a master hypnotist, and we're going to dive into some of his practice and his techniques, and even more than that, how he's able to help people overcome their traumas and their issues in their lives to live their most fulfilled life. Ken is an incredible story. This is part one in a series. Ken, can you tell us a little bit about your practice, or a lot of it, because you have a lot of layers to this practice? Oh, sure, Teresa. I appreciate your time today. Um, what I am is I'm a, I'm a life coach and a hypnotist, as you just stated. And the important thing to understand about that is I've taken two, two areas of, of, uh, of healing and combined them. And then when you actually get into the umbrella of life coaching, there's so much you can keep in there, add in there that uh, uh, more and more than just one or two things. So when I started off in hypnosis years ago, I noticed that we were able to make um, make changes in people's uh, you know, behavior or or the way they think or feel, what have you, whatever they were looking for. Um, but it was always short lived, uh, just one or two sessions, and uh, it you can get people calling back again, you know, months later saying it didn't stick, it didn't last, and whatever. And unfortunately, you know, very commonly we'd hear that people may have even feel worse now because they got a glimpse of feeling better. They wanted that to stay, but then it went, and then they really feel like there's something wrong with them. And this is when I was you know, familiar with other clinics when I was first learning, and I'd watch how they did it, and I just didn't, didn't agree with it. I, I didn't agree with um, sitting someone down, talking to them for like five minutes, you know, making them comfortable in the moment, and then suddenly zoning them out into a hypnosis when you really don't know anything more about them than their name and their email address. So I wanted to, to take it deeper and further. So I came up with a questionnaire that I had people fill out. And it would be pretty in-depth about their, who they are, their life, uh, you know, marital status, kids, family stuff, childhood stuff. Tell me more and more about yourself so that way I have more of an understanding of who you are. And then after we get that questionnaire filled out, then I'm going to spend an hour talking to you about that questionnaire because mm -hmm. I really need to know as much about you as I possibly can in that period of time. How I like to explain it is if somebody comes to me, or any hypnotist for that matter, and they want to just quit smoking because, you know, hypnosis is popular for quitting smoking. We kind of familiarize that. So if someone says, hey, I want to quit smoking, good. Put you in hypnosis and you can say the very common stuff that's on all the scripts that you can buy online that I don't participate in myself. Uh, but might say in the hypnosis, in the middle of it, quit smoking because smoking's bad for you. You want to live a help, happy, healthy life without smoking. Your mom wants you to quit. Your dad wants you to quit. You're, you know, blah, blah, et cetera, that kind of thing. Well, if I didn't know that you were uh, physically or sexually abused by your mother or your father as a child, then that could be a real problem. So that person could literally leave there and smoke twice as much because I mentioned a trigger in hypnosis that I wasn't aware of. But now if I go through this in-depth background check, I'm certainly going to avoid that or, or find a way to use that to my advantage in your hypnosis. So you, you have to be able to really know what the person's about. So that's where the, uh, the umbrella of life coaching came in. So more I'm learning, well, now I'm actually coaching them on their life of what they've experienced and where they, where they want to go, not where they're 
destined to go. So life coaching, it affords that. It's not just telling people you can do it. I see that stuff on TV and movies all the time. I'm not, I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not a drill sergeant. I'm not making you accountable for anything. That's, that's not at all what a life coach does. What a life coach does, they help you sort through, sift through the issues of your life, the negative stuff that's behind the scenes, under the surface. They're causing you to, to act and feel and be, uh, behave in ways that you don't want. So no one ever comes to me saying, hey, Ken, I'm eating way too much broccoli and spinach. And I, I just can't stop doing all this yoga. No, 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 no. No one ever comes to me with that. It's always I'm smoking too much. I'm drinking too much. Um, I have depression. I have anxiety. I'm taking all these pills for all these different uh, conditions. And they want to find something different than all the pills. They want something different than therapy. Because no, no disrespect to therapy. It has its place. But I get countless clients, 90% of my clients have been in therapy for years, and it makes them feel worse and worse year after year because they're not getting anywhere. Right. So going nowhere is really going in reverse in the way the human mind works. Mm-hmm. So they can come to me, and after just a couple of sessions, they start feeling all, you know, much better and more possibility. And that's really a great word in that moment, possibility. That person didn't have possibility and hope while they were going to therapy and being, you know, saturated with all those pills, they, they really didn't feel that. They knew it probably existed somewhere. Maybe hope and possibility existed for other people, but not for themselves. And, and you're and able to find that quickly after you start a few sessions? I can usually help someone find that in just a few minutes of the first, oh, of, the, of the remarkable. initial session, yeah. That's incredible. Well, it, it's not hard to find. You know, human nature and human behaviors it's extremely you know, complex, but at the same time, it's also very simple. So we, we make it more complex than it needs to be, but when we also bring it back down to simple, boil it down, you know, like the old acronym KISS, keep it simple, stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, the simpler we make it, the easier it is to manage and maneuver because it's, it's a complex system that takes care of itself. We just constantly get in the way. And you're talking about the human mind, the yes, complex system. Exactly. What is the difference when someone comes to you and they say, okay, I have these issues, I don't know what to do. How do you know if you're going to be their life coach or if you're going to use hypnosis for, to help them? Oh, well, I only have one program, and that is the entire program. Okay. I'm going to administer to a client whatever they need. So I, I do... Again, under the life coaching, I'm going to do hypnosis when necessary, um, when it's when it's uh, uh, therapeutically you know advantageous. I might also do Reiki energy healing. I might even in, in, uh, employ some NLP or you know, neuro linguistic programming techniques, visualization techniques, uh, a lot of different techniques even that I've created myself that help people to just get a change in their state. So even though my company is called Love Your Life Hypnosis, I'm not just a hypnotist ever. And I do get people who call me and say, well, no, 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 I don't want all that life coaching stuff. I just want you just to hypnotize me for this thing. And I tell them, I'm sorry, I can't help you. You need to you know, go find someone else. But um, the, the, the real, the, the big part of it you want to you know, try to wrap your brain around and understand is that uh, no one thing works for everybody. And so if I'm just a hypnotist, I'm trying to say that hypnosis is going to solve all your problems, but I know it doesn't. So that's why I, I add 
all the other modalities, the healing modalities that I can possibly come up with and add more all the time because I know cultural changes, uh, evolution uh, of, uh, of social values, they're constantly changing so fast that things that I did just two or three years ago don't work today. And I know things that I'm doing today are not necessarily going to work years from now. So I have to constantly evolve and change with that, whatever that might mean. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I love that. I'm intrigued by that, that someone can come to you and say, okay, I'm having issues. I am having uh, emotional struggles or hab- habitual struggles, and I don't know what to do to change it. The customer or the patient doesn't need to know what to expect from you or what to ask from you, but just to come to you and say, I need help. And you have all of these tools in your toolkit at your disposal that you can work with them as a life coach but then use the other modalities that you see fit and that you've had great experience with to help them with what you're seeing as their troubles is that correct that is a great way to characterize it and i and i actually i have the ability to do that in an an initial phone conversation Uh, in order for me and certainly other people are going to run their business differently but you cannot get an appointment with me without talking to me on the phone for 20 minutes first to get an understanding of who you are, what it is that you're needing, looking for, what your experiences are, how I might be able to fit, might be able to help. And, you know, sometimes I might suggest to someone I'm not right fit for you. Um, but most of the time, whatever they're calling me for, they learn very quickly that that's not their problem at all. So, for example, someone who wants to quit smoking, very common Smoking is not the biggest problem in their life. Smoking is a result of the other problems that they're not dealing with or, or, or facing. So smoking becomes the coping mechanism that they need to get through their day while they're not dealing with the bigger problems. That makes absolute sense. And that is probably indicative of not only smoking, but maybe overeating, drinking, any other habit that is not conducive to good health. Absolutely correct, yes. It's... It, I'm going to say probably 98% of the time, if I could put an estimation to it, uh, whatever someone comes in for, they're going to find that it's something else. You and I were chatting before we started recording, and you have an incredible history that led you to this path. Can you go back and touch a little bit on that and, and what led you to, to dive into hypnosis and becoming a life coach? Well, you know, it's... Uh, it's the same old story, you know, you hear it over and over again where someone had a, an adverse childhood uh, that ended up kind of turning them around at some point in their life and going in a different direction that would be, you know, usually unheard of. Um, and that's kind of the same old story that I have. It's not special. It's not unique. Uh, my parents both had problems with drugs, alcohol. Uh, they both smoked two packs of cigarettes a day. They they smoked in the house. Like I still think it's funny when I, I have friends, uh, know people that are smokers, and they'll step outside to smoke and then come back in. Even in Wisconsin winter, yes. they're going outside it's to common. smoke, <laughs> and they come back in so they're not polluting the house and the rest of the family with their secondary smoke. But I remember as a child having severe problems with asthma, uh, sinus, chronic sinusitis, uh, ear infections, sinus infections, strep throat infections. I've had pneumonia three times in my life. It was absolutely affecting your physical health. Absolutely. And being a child, like maybe eight, nine, ten years old, I'd see in the house there would be a, a, a layer of smoke, cigarette smoke, four feet down from the ceiling. So I literally would crawl sometimes from room to room 
because that's the only place there was any decent air that I could breathe, because if I stood up, my eyes would burn, my sinuses would burn, I'd cough and choke, and I, you know, usually if I could cough and choke so much, I wouldn't even be able to sleep that night, because it had done, like, scarred my throat for the night. It's just, like, raw now, and I wouldn't be able to sleep. Mm. But uh, that's just kind of an example of how my parents just, they weren't capable of thinking outside of themselves, what they're actually doing, you know, to, to someone else with their own habit. Uh, then there's the drinking. It is pretty funny, I think. Uh, when I look back, I was born in Buffalo, New York, uh, 1968. So, yeah, I'm really old. Um, We're the same age. I was oh. born in 67. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, well props to you. Um, so, uh, yeah, in, in 1971, my parents uh, left the three kids behind for a week vacation to Las Vegas. So I assume we stayed with grandparents or family or what have you. My parents went to Las Vegas for a vacation. When they came back, they were already deciding they were moving to Las Vegas. So we left everything we knew, grandparents, aunts, uncles. I probably had, you know, 10, 12 aunts and un- sets of aunts and uncles, dozens upon dozens of cousins, left all of that to go to Las Vegas. How old were you at that time? Three years old. So oh we're talking gosh. 1971, we moved to Las Vegas. And when I got a little older, I, I noticed, you know, talking to my friends, my friends have grandparents in their lives. They have aunts and uncles. They have cousins to play In their with. lives and not yeah, just across yeah, country. Exactly. Right. Not just a, fo- a voice on the end of a phone. Yes. And I asked my mother, probably when I was about uh, maybe eight or nine years old, I'm guessing, I said, why did we leave Buffalo when everything, our entire lives were there? And my mother said, because Las Vegas has no last call for alcohol. Oh, my so that really helps you to understand, you know, the, the environment that I grew up in, that the alcohol, the partying was more important than the well-being, health and well-being of the family. Of your own children, right. So unfortunately, as it goes, the uh, living in Las Vegas um, you know, all those years, my parents, they were young and impressionable. They got out of Buffalo where they, you know, the only place that they knew. And they kind of lost their minds for, for several years, 10, 15 years, nonstop partying, drinking, drugs, gambling. And of course that does not bring about rational behavior. They became just really bad, bad people, negative all the time, very angry, very hate-filled because they couldn't figure out how they're going to pay the rent. I remember uh, they were talking about the first house we rented when we moved to Las Vegas. The rent was $475 a month for the house. And my mother was working in the uh, poker, poker room dealing at the uh, Circus Circus making $200 a night in tips back in the 1970s. Whoa. My That's father, substantial back then. Oh, yes. Yeah. And my father, as a carpenter, uh, he, uh, in the booming you know, Las Vegas uh, uh, economy and, and housing market, he was working in, as a carpenter. Um, he, he, I remember his paychecks being on average of about $1,000 a week. But they could not figure out how they were going to pay the $475 a month rent because all the money went to the drugs, the drinking, the partying, the gambling, the cigarettes. Uh, I remember even uh, there was a time when we were, my parents had bought, we rented a house, then they bought a house. Uh, then we were, it was obvious they were they were talking about it because they couldn't not talk about the negative things. Is that we're we're losing the house soon? We're not we can't afford to pay the mortgage. The mortgage was like six hundred and ninety dollars or something like this, late seventies, uh, early eighties. And uh, I remember going to the grocery store with my mother, and we'd go to the store. 
see the bill when she paid it, it'd be on average of $200 per week for a five family of five for the groceries. And then we'd go out the door of the grocery store, walk 20 feet down that sidewalk into the liquor store next door. And then I would watch that bill, and it would be about an average of $200 a week for the alcohol, for just two people, for my parents. So five people eating for $200 a week, two people drinking for $200 a week. And then from there, we would drive to the, uh, we would drive to the uh, um, Indian Reser local Indian reservation where they sell, sold cigarettes. Uh, buy the carton, duty-free, at a slight discount. So we'd go there, and she'd buy another almost $100 worth of cigarettes, to a couple of cartons for herself, a couple of cartons for my father, and they both smoked two packs a day. So they went through a couple of cartons in about a week, week and a half. So I remember then years later, we're talking about how we're losing the house in foreclosure, and I did simple calculations. Well, if you just stop drinking alone, just if you could stop drinking, that, that's the mortgage payment all by itself. But they actually, they literally chose the alcohol over the mortgage payment. They never once went without the alcohol, never once went without the cigarettes. But they did not pay the mortgage for several months until we were evicted. So it kind of helps you understand, you know, again, a little bit of the environment. So along with that came a lot of abuse. Uh, my father was, um, was always angry, always mad about something. Uh, everybody was stupid. He was the only person in the world that was smart. Yeah, and everything. <laughs> I'm laughing. I know people like that. <laughs> yeah, and, and you can never do anything right. Uh, I was. My father called me dumb, dummy, stupid, dumbass kid, um, dumb fucking kid. Sorry if I you don't want me to swear. You can edit that out. <laughs> dumb fucking kid. Literally every day, several times a day throughout my childhood. And as a parent, my heart breaks for you, knowing that you had to just endure that. <laughs> Mm. I mean, at the time, of course, it's just confusing, but, you know, it's just, you're used to it. So it, it's, Sad, it's, it's no big deal. Yeah. You know, either if you call me Ken or you call me stupid, it doesn't matter. It's, just, it's who I am at that point. So you just accept it. And, and, and you don't realize how wrong it is until you get older. And you look back and you go, oh, wait a minute, that was, that was wrong. That was bad. Yeah. So um, and then along with that, every time they bring that glass of alcohol to their lips, I noticed it. Every sip, they would get louder, more angry, meaner, nastier, until it was time to start hitting somebody. And whoever was around, my sister, I have an older sister, she's five years older than me, she really never got much of the physical abuse because they, I think they looked at it with the old world values of, well, you don't go around beating your girl. Mm -hmm. But I also have an older brother, he's four years older than me, and then I'm the baby. So... They, I really feel that my parents looked at it like my older brother was the one that they were allowed to take their aggressions out on. So they beat him mercilessly. And some of the worst memories of my entire childhood were not of my own beatings, but witnessing my brother's beatings, watching him get beat mercilessly, uh, hearing the screams, the pleas, the crying, you know, not, and none of it helped at all. They just kept on just kept on doing God, it. You're just tearing at my heart. I just can't imagine. Yeah, it, it's a lot of just a lot of physical abuse that we had to endure yeah. and watch. And then, of course, my sister. She did tell at one point. She told my brother-in-law, her, her her husband, uh, many years ago. She confessed to him that our father did things to her that sexually that you know she you know obviously wished didn't happen. 
um, when she was like 12, 13, 14 years old, when she started to develop, you know, as into a you know girl, young woman, that uh, he was doing things. She never was specific about it, but I also don't doubt it at all, knowing the way my father is. Mm-hmm. So there's, again, just a lot of abuse. Then there's the, the what I call the spiritual abuse. Uh, we were raised in the Catholic Church, uh, so we went to church almost every Sunday, and even some catechism classes. Anyone who's in a Catholic church knows what that says. It's just a religious class that you go. Right, I was brought up Catholic as well, so I get all the terminology. Okay, well, right? there you go. Um, and so my, my parents were old school Roman Catholics. Uh, my mother actually Italian, my father Polish. But that old East Coast mentality, the, 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 the old ways. And, you know, we all know that the old teachings of the Catholic Church is everything you do, everything you think, everything you feel, say, or do, is you're going to go to hell, right? It's all, every bit of it's <laughs> a sin. Unless you buy a candle at the front of the church. <laughs> right. You have to confess, and you have to say ten Hail Marys mm-hmm. and whatever else. But, see, my parents left that part out. But they, but my father in particular, uh, just a thousand times wagging his, his pointer finger in my face saying, God is going to get you for that. You know, you didn't, uh, you know, take out the trash when I said God's going to get you for that. You know, you're, you're not showing proper respect to me. I'm your father. God is going to get you for that. So I really was walking around in absolute terror as a child. We're talking five, six years old uh, and older. Um, just terrified that God was going to just pop out of nowhere and get me, whatever that meant. I didn't know what it even meant. All I knew is that it was ter- it was terrifying. Right. Oh my gosh, as a child to have that, and plus mm-hmm. with your parents and like having no safe haven. Exactly, right. no safe haven. That's a, that's a really great way to put it. So uh, you know, with all that that you know abuse growing up, not knowing when my parents were gonna you know say or do something, my mother was was ice cold, um, unloving, uncaring, unnurturing. She thought she was the greatest mother in the world. She used, she used to love the word sacrifice. Well, I sacrifice all the time. I sacrifice my life for you as kids. Well, I never saw that. I saw her doing whatever she wanted all the time, you know, for herself. And uh, I think I may have shared with you this story briefly before, when we were talking earlier. I think now it's funny. At the time, I didn't understand. But uh, throughout my, my, my childhood, all the way up till high school, I remember, grade school, Junior high, high school, my mother always worked the uh, second shift, or in Las Vegas it was called uh, swing shift, which was roughly 4 p.m. to midnight or maybe 5 p.m. to 1 a.m., that kind of thing. So that way she could thoroughly avoid the family coming home from school, my father coming home from work, because she absolutely did not want to be a mother. She told us many times, you know, that she wished she had gotten an abortion with me. Oh, my goodness. My father, my father's the stupidest man I ever knew in my life. He literally told me dozens upon dozens of times as a small child that we were going to get an abortion with you. We didn't want more kids. We didn't want you. But you're lucky. We're Catholic and Catholics don't believe in abortion, but we were going to do it anyway. But you're lucky. So therefore, you need to be really you know, grateful to God because you're here and grateful to me. I would use that word lucky very loosely. I mean, not, I mean, no, I don't mean that in a bad way. You are an amazing man. But for his standpoint mm-hmm. to say that, that's yeah. just, yes, that's Christ. Yeah. Mm. So as a child, you're having to endure this on a daily basis mm-hmm. and grow up this way. And it's not changing. No. Yeah. No. The only thing that happened was, you know, as you can you know, tell by being in the room with me, I'm a very large man. I'm six foot three, currently weigh about 380 pounds, power lifter. Just, yes, I was going to say you're lifter. very strong. Yeah I'm, yeah, I'm one of those big, strong guys you yes. see on TV. 
Um, and uh, uh, so I've never, I, I, as growing up, as I got older, it got to where when my mother hit me, she would hurt her hand. So she stopped hitting me, but she'd still keep with the verbal assault. So when you're 15 years old, just because you're gigantic doesn't mean your feelings can't be terrible. I would rather her hit me with her car than the things that she would say to me about how she, you know, wish I'd never had you. I wish you were never born. I wish we'd have gone through with the abortion. Uh, you know, you're a disappointment. You're all those things that she would say that were just so awful. And my father, he, same thing, he would threaten to hit me, but I think he knew that if he hit me, he'd just probably hurt himself more than anything. So he would also just double down on all that horrible uh, degradation, uh, passive aggressiveness, and nothing I did was ever good enough. And it would be in a spectacular fashion. It was never subtle. It was like, well, it was never, well, that's not how I would do it. Yeah, that's one form of passive aggression. No, my, my, my father would be, you're a fucking moron. Anybody who would do that is just stupid. I can't believe you're my kid, that you're that dumb. You're, what, 17 years old and you can't figure that out? What's wrong with you? I mean, and now by today's standards, or any standards, actually, that is just so wrong. That is mm -hmm. so morally, ethically values wrong. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, and, and as I was describing, a lot of the abuse that my, I watched my brother endure was really bad. My brother, uh, again, he's four years older than I am, so he became my father's drinking buddy when he was about 11 years old. Oh. So at 11 years my old, sister. my father, you know, well, one thing that is I, just so interesting to me, again, this really puts a point on the alcohol, how important alcohol was. Every home we ever lived in, and we lived in a lot of homes. We had to move a lot because my parents could would always fail on the mortgage or fail paying the rent. But when we were looking at a new house, the first question when we walk in the door, where are we going to put the bar? Where do we set up the bar? So my parents always had a bar that they would you know, bring from house to house, set it up, set up all the alcohol, set up some shelves to, to display the alcohol and the glasses and all that stuff. You know, do maybe even some kind of mood lighting to make it feel like you're at a tavern kind of thing. And so you'd see my father sitting there smoking cigarette after cigarette, uh, drinking you know, uh, throughout the afternoon and evening, and requiring my brother to sit there with him. So my brother, starting at about 11 years old, would just sit there and wasn't allowed to leave. And then my father gave, okay, here, you can have a sip of my beer. Okay, you can have a, another sip of my beer. Okay, you can have another sip. And then pretty soon, before my brother, I think, was even 12, he would have his own can of beer and sitting right in front of him. And by the time he was 13 or 14, he's, he would drink you know, maybe a, a six-pack sitting there with the and, old man. And he's a child. He's a kid, and he doesn't know any better. He doesn't know that this is exactly. unacceptable or wrong, and his father should not be doing that. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, he started smoking, too. My brother started smoking by 12 or 13 years old right there with our father. My father was all about telling you what not to do while doing it. He's already doing it. You Don't you smoke. And he'd give you a cigarette and say, don't you ever smoke. Don't you drink. You don't want to drink. I've never been a drinker, and I think it's because of what I witnessed. I just didn't want to do that. Right, right. I, like I was saying earlier, I just saw, I saw the humanity leave with every sip of alcohol, uh, just becoming, you know, just a, a more and more unhappy, uh, miserable, angry, hate-filled person with every sip. And I like it that now you took that, and we were talking earlier, you took all of this uh, horrendousness of your childhood and you were able to, 
you know, become a very successful contractor. Right. And and then even through that, you you saw you said you you struggled with some health troubles, and then through all of this, you were able to finally come through it all to now to where you are to be able to use all of that to help people. And you had mentioned to me earlier, which is such a compassionate thing to say, is that I needed to go through that or that that is why that childhood is what brought you to where you are today that you can help people to the degree that you do. Uh, yes, uh, that's, that's a really great way to characterize it. Is uh, it, it. I like the word gratitude. Gratitude is just such a, uh, a great way to live your life. Whatever happens, be grateful. Whatever it is can turn can be turned into something that we're we're really appreciative for because it could have always been worse. And then there's also the lesson that we learn. We know in life that we don't really learn very much from our 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 triumphs. We don't l learn very much from our successes. We learn a great deal from our losses, our failures, our screw-ups, our problems. They are our biggest teachers. They are our biggest teachers, but unfortunately in recent uh, years or you know, new, newer generations, that's lost. Uh, if there's a problem, it's someone else's problem. If you failed, who do we blame for it? You know, this kind of what's going on in our society, so it, that's really becoming you know, almost extinct, it seems. But, but, you know... Yeah, that is true. And then you even think of, you know, the whole, the adage of ribbons for everyone, participation ribbons. Yes, and, you know, exactly. You don't get cut from the team anymore, and you're all okay, that's not your problem. Right? What did someone do to you? <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, it's, 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 that is so destructive to the human condition. I think that it's uplifting, but it really is. It's setting a false expectation for that child's life to get a participation uh, ribbon. So they're expecting that no matter where I show up in life, everybody's just going to be happy that I'm there and I'm going to get rewarded for it. And that's and just not how, not exactly. how it's going to work. No. Mm -hmm. so, we see this so much in my practice where <laughs> sometimes it's very obvious. We're looking, we can find somebody who has massive amounts of, of, uh, of abuse and struggle in their life. And that kind of is very easy to take them through down that road to resolve those things. Other people, I've had people tell me I had a great childhood. My parents were wonderful, but I have no self-esteem, no self-confidence. I don't believe in myself. I have imposter syndrome, which is anybody who's not familiar with imposter syndrome, where I just feel like I'm an imposter in my own life, that I don't deserve the things that I have, and how is it these people don't know that I don't deserve this? Uh, I've had uh, I've had uh, uh, attorneys, I've had doctors, I've had you know successful people of all types have this same type of feeling because they they grew up with some kind of privilege, and it was too much privilege, and then when they they never really earned anything. Well, if I can help you understand that you did earn it, you did earn like your college degree, your doctorate degree, your lawyer degree, engineering degree, or whatever it is. Well, you did actually do that. But even though we go through, I can imagine that kind of college and training is very difficult, it's not really that difficult like on a spiritual level. Emotional level, yeah. Mental level, yes. Physical and spiritual, not really. It's not really pushing people you know, uh, into a place of, of real accomplishment. Now, if you win the big game, that's a mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual accomplishment. But, you know, we, we, we talk to, like, people, Tom Brady has said that uh, after winning a, a Super Bowl, 
You feel great that night, but the next day it's just another day. There's nothing special about it anymore. It's gone. So we, we have to constantly be going after more and more. But then when you have the people who have been abused, guess what? They can really appreciate now the value of things being better. They can really appreciate the lack of abuse now. So it gives us something to grow. Either way, no matter what you got going on, we have something to grow from to be grateful for and work with. Mm-hmm. Gratitude, resiliency. Strength, yes, yes. intestinal fortitude to be able to continue on when you know things are going to be hard, but just to fight for a betterment, yes, improvement. And you know, and that also brings to mind another thing for me. Gratitude just really holds special um, because, again, my father, my father. One of the things that he would bark at me when I was starting my youngest memory, four or five years old, yell at me and tell me how ungrateful I was. I'm four years old. I don't even know what this big word means. All I know is it's something really, really bad because it's coming out of him with anger, with negativity, with hurt. I'm, you know, so I'm, I just walk around, oh my God, I'm ungrateful. And I don't know what that even means. I didn't realize what ungrateful meant until I became like in junior high school when, when I maybe looked it up or you know, came across it. Um, so now that I got you know, later in life, I really, really tr- uh, just treasure the word grateful and gratitude because he showed me he, he actually my father taught me a lot of lessons none of the ones that he intended <laughs> but he still taught me a great deal he taught me the value of being ungrateful to where i became grateful so one thing can overturn to the other in in in, in how we view things in human behavior and i know it sounds you know, kind of nutty, but people do it all the time. We get pushed to the edge, and then we simply turn to another way. And you know, you're nodding your yeah, head, yeah, yeah, so yeah, absolutely. you can definitely absolutely. make that register, right? Yeah. So I, I learned to really appreciate gratitude. And then uh, uh, years ago, I came across the Ho'oponopono uh, philosophy. Have you ever heard of this? I do not think I have. Can you explain that uh, first? Ho'oponopono, it's just so much fun to say. <laughs> it uh, sounds Hawaiian. Try it. <laughs> Ho'oponopono. You did it Was that correct? <laughs> yes. It is Hawaiian. It's an ancient Hawaiian philosophy for the enlightened life. So it's, it's very specific, the way that you say that. It's not saying it's in search of a happy life or, or in search of you know, a better life. No, no. Enlightened life. So that means your entire life overall is going to have this next level vibration, this higher vibrational energy, this enlightenment that kind of, you know, saturates and permeates throughout. And it has four basic tenets. It's so simple. What's Hawaiian? And they're very simple people, but they've really nailed it when it comes to this stuff. Uh, The four basic tenets are, uh, I, uh, I love you, I forgive you, thank you, and I'm grateful. It can even be broken down to four words. Those are four phrases. can be broken down to love, gratitude, forgiveness, and apology. I, I'm sorry, I didn't say, did I, did I say apology? I kind of got it confused in my head. But anyway, p- apology is one of them. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry is what I should have said. Uh, so anyway, those are the four basic tenets. And so that has gratitude right there in it along with love. And of course, I, love, I named my company Love Your Life Hypnosis because of that as well as my appreciation for love. Uh, so I, how can you fit all that in? <laughs> I love and grateful for my life, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me for everything. You know, that'd be a long title. <laughs> <laughs> long business name. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't fit on a business card or letterhead. So, 
And how did you first learn about that? I'm going to try it again. Lo opono, lo, <laughs> do it again. <laughs> ho opono pono. Ho opono pono. How did you first learn about that? Uh, I, th- I think I probably first learned about it a good oh, 15 to 20 years ago or so. I, I, I remember seeing uh, someone had this um, placard uh, in their house, and it just said, Love, gratitude, apology, forgiveness. I thought, oh, that's nice. And it was in a Hawaiian-style-looking placard with the, the beautiful lily flowers around it and things like that. And I remember talking to someone, you know, the person of that house, and they said, said oh, yeah, that's, that's, they just said it's Hawaiian. So, oh, oh, okay, that sounds nice. Actually, I keep on forgetting how old I am. That's probably more like 30 years ago at least. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, that's just nice. I just like the way that sounded. <clears throat> and then it came, I'd seen it or heard it again a couple of times over the years. And then I actually, you know, heard the name, the, the title, Ho'oponopono. And I, I couldn't, like you, I just couldn't pronounce it the first several times. And <laughs> then I that <laughs> finally looked it up and, and uh, you know, just really fell in love with that philosophy. And it is love, gratitude. Gratitude, forgiveness. Forgiveness. And apology. And apology. Okay. Uh, and, you know, actually, I'm happy to run down it really quick with you, the way I practice it and how I teach it in my office. Oh, absolutely. Please. So when we take, we'll, uh, I'm looking at your list here in order of, uh, okay, love. I love you. I want, I'm asking and hoping that you love me. I love everything and everyone, big, small, and everything in between. And I hope and beg that you love me as well. Then you go to, what do you have next here? Gratitude? Gratitude. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for everything in my life, big, small, good, bad, all of it. Because all of it makes me who I am. So I am therefore grateful for everything that I have ever had, I am, or ever will become. I'm grateful. Uh, then you have forgiveness. forgiveness. I forgive you, and I hope that you can forgive me. I forgive you for anything you may have ever done or said to make me feel bad or hurt. And I hope that you accept my forgiveness for anything I may have ever done to help you feel bad or down or, or, or sad. And then apology. I hope you can accept my apology. Please allow me to apologize to you for anything or everything I may have ever done to cause you pain, sorrow, disappointment. And at the same time, I'm going to receive your apology, even if you don't say it, that it may have ever brought me pain, sorrow, or disappointment. And then to cap the whole thing off, I also love me, first and foremost. I'm also grateful for me and how I am living my life and respond. I'm forgiving. I forgive myself for all the stupid shit that I've ever done or said to hurt myself or others. And I also accept my own apology for, for those same things. That is hugely powerful. Not only that you do it for others and with others and to others, but introspectively now you're going to turn it around and forgive yourself. You're going to love yourself and be grateful for yourself and your journey to be where you are now. Mm-hmm. You kind of you mm-hmm. kind of feel it, don't you? No, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Give me goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now you use this in your practice? Yes, actually, uh, I have a, a medallion on my wall uh, with that uh, says this on there, and it's a good teaching. Is it a philosophy that you follow more so, or is it an actual teaching that you incorporate with your healing of others? Oh, all that. Yeah, definitely a philosophy oh. that I follow in life. And uh, a teaching to help people, you know, again, the more simple we can make it, that's four basic tenets, which can be broken down to four words, four single words that can really help, 
you know, give someone a new perspective. Mm -hmm. That is powerful. Really is. As I see a lot of these programs, like online, there's so much stuff. And, you, you know, for, for 2000 bucks, you can buy our program. And then they send to you a dozen DVDs and a dozen CDs and a big booklet that you have to go through and write down and journal and answer all these questions about yourself. And it's, it becomes ridiculously overwhelming. And you know what most people do? They just throw it in the garbage. They don't participate in it. Uh, because it's just too much. But then again, at the same time, they're too embarrassed to even say or admit to anyone or themselves that I spent $2,000 on this program that I just threw in the garbage because I'm not good enough to do it. Ah, and then it comes back around to self-love. Yeah. But I love this because it's, like you said, simple. Mm-hmm. You have four words, something you can remember, something you can apply. And even in, when you're dealing with something in an immediate struggle, mm-hmm. you can think of these four words very simply. Love, gratitude, forgiveness, apology. And mm-hmm. it is easy to apply immediately. Yes. It's instant. You, as soon as you start saying it, because then I run down the example I just gave you, and then I ask my client in the office, do your best to kind of mimic what I just said. You can ad lib it if you want to add your own or if you can't remember. That's okay. Just throw it together, whatever. And you can watch the person as they're saying it. Just something melts inside of them. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. It, it, it dissolves. Yes. Yeah. Like some, some walls come down. Yeah, it's really, really great to watch. I want to take you back again further back in your story to how you actually ended up starting this incredible business that you have. So you were a, a contractor. You're a, a building contractor in Vegas. Correct, yes. And you're very successful. And yes. you're doing great things. And what happened that was the catalyst that you started leaving that, or maybe not leaving, shying away from that line of work and realizing that you had some inner work you needed to do? Well, um, in the beginning years, uh, it, was just a lot, it was a lot of work, you know, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, seven days a week, uh, just really don't have any time to think about your past. And I think that's what a lot of people do, and I found myself doing also, that distraction prevented me from having to think about or focus on the, the negative things of my life that I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. So I, that great thing, put it to good use and build something, build a business, build, build a, a, a lifestyle, right? <clears throat> could have gone another way, could have been an alcoholic, could have had drug problems, could have had all kinds Easily of other things. Easily could have gone any other direction. Right. Absolutely. So I did something productive with it. And as I noticed, as the, the, the more money I was earning, the, the more success I was enjoying, I got to where I had a company, a, con- a general contractor, which this is absolutely unheard of, a general contractor where I was so uh, uh, had things so specialized in how I did things, the contracts that I was getting, that I was pushing uh, average 30% to the bottom line, which anyone in business, uh, can, if you can get 10% to the bottom line profit, that's good. I was getting 30% to the bottom line profit, and I wasn't even, didn't even have to be there. I was work, got to, towards the end where I was working maybe two hours a day, uh, find myself just bored sitting in my office because everything was in automatic overdrive that I had in place. Because you had hired and surrounded yourself with good people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And then I'd find myself going to a movie at one or two in the afternoon and then go and pick up my kids and go on home. Uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was a very interesting trajectory, but at the same time, the more success I enjoyed, the more uh, free time I started to get, um, that's when all the pain started coming back. Um, the more memories of my life and my childhood, the, the, the physical, mental, spiritual abuse, all that started coming back more and more, making me very angry. 
that anger uh, and hatred, of course, came right with it, it's, it's toxic. That stuff is really bad. Uh, and at this point now, I have a, a beautiful wife named Michelle. We're still married today, 27 years. And we have two. Thank you very much. And we have two incredible, beautiful, wonderful daughters, Danielle and, and Lauren. Uh, they're both in their mid 20s now. So th they were very small, tiny little girls. Um, and I'm now I'm getting festering all this anger and hatred, and I didn't want to become a that that kind of a dad. Um, so I, I wasn't sure what I could do about it. So I kept on pushing it down further and further acting like everything was okay when it really was not. And so it's got to come out somewhere. So I started developing a lot of health issues. I, I had health issues my entire life, by the way, starting from birth. I've always had problems with respiratory problems. I've always had problems with uh, um, infections, sinus infections, ear infections, throat infections, lung infections. Probably a lot of that due to the environment in which you grew up. Uh, exactly. And, 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 of course, there's the whole thing where my, I was not breastfed, which also led to digestive problems. I'm, I still today have terrible digestive issues. Um, but I had this all my life. But I was able to keep it at bay by taking and, you know, next level good care of myself, what I eat, what I drink, what I expose myself to. And so I was able to control my exterior, but I could not do anything. I wasn't doing anything about my interior. So it has to come to call at some point. It's going to be heard. So now a do literally a dozen or more autoimmune diseases are just attacking me. I ended up with like seven or eight um, uh, metabolic diseases. Uh, had just an unbelievable array of 50 or 60 negative symptoms every single day, uh, headaches, uh, swollen sinuses, diarrhea, fibromyalgia pain, arthritis pain, you know, just lots and lots and lots of pain and, and difficulty breathing, all kinds of things. So that was, it's, it's co not just coincidence that this was getting, becoming bigger and bigger in my life as I was enjoying the success. It's, be, it's because I was enjoying the success. There's a program in, that was created in me from a small you know, baby throughout my childhood that I don't deserve success. Because I was told, if you're told you're stupid every day, you, that's basically saying you're going to be nothing but an idiot and, and a loser the rest of your life. But at so, this point, you're very financially successful, and now all of a sudden, now you have to deal with all these other issues mm -hmm, exacerbating. Exactly. So the mind has to balance it out somewhere. Okay, so you have... A successful relationship with your wife and kids you have a successful relationship with your community have a successful relationship with your finances and your business so we're gonna balance this out by taking it out on the body so um, saw countless doctors for all this stuff I mean literally dozens upon dozens of doctors and uh, specialists of all type went out of the country for stem cell treatments and things like this and, and nothing ever did it nothing helped I mean stem cells helped a little bit but not enough to really justify it um, to where I was told a couple of times that, you know, I, I was actually going to die soon. Uh, and that last time that I was told that my body was shutting down, heart is operating at maybe 50%, liver 50%, lungs 50% or so. Um, there was a point that they thought my gallbladder may have been completely shut down um, uh, my insulins were through the roof, even though I was, wasn't even eating sugar. My cells were insulin-resistant, oxygen-resistant, all kinds of stuff like this. And so that probably wasn't going to be around much more than another month or so. And at this point, you're only how old? 
Oh, mid-30s. Um, so young. Yeah, 35, I think, 36, somewhere in there. So young and to feel so overwhelmingly ill. Yes, yeah. It was, uh, it was, it was it, you know, but to me, I was so used to pain and suffering. It, it really, I, I was just used to it. I didn't like it, but I was just used to it. Almost, you know, we go through uh, what's familiar. Well, I was familiar with all that pain and suffering, so I was actually very comfortable in it. Doesn't mean it made me happy. It wasn't what I was in search of, what I wanted, but it was comfortable and familiar. So it, it makes it hard to do something about something you're comfortable and familiar with, right? But anyway, I knew I deserved better. I always knew I deserved better. I always knew that I was better than my family. Now, that might sound arrogant, but I don't care. It's the it's way I felt. It's not arrogant. No, not at all. Uh, I always knew that I, I was better than my... I, by the time I was 12 or 13 years old, I knew I was smarter than my parents. I mean, I, <laughs> and it was evident. I could see it. <laughs> but anyway, I'm shutting down, body shutting down, shutting down, told I might, I'm probably going to die soon. And then I decided, okay, I'm not going to do that. I have a beautiful wife and two beautiful baby girls at home, so I'm not doing this stuff. I'm not, I'm not going to go out like this. So I started meditating. Um, I, I knew, I, I always knew. I never, there was never a doubt that the problems were my childhood. There's no doubt. Um, but the other part of you is like, okay, you're a doctor. Fucking fix me. This is your job. What the hell's wrong with you? You're, you're a specialist. I'm coming to you. I'm paying you. Why aren't you doing your job? And, and not I, just once or twice. You're doing this over and repeatedly <laughs> and over again. Dozens upon dozens of doctors. And I became more and more angry and more and more hate-filled because I'm paying these doctors and they're not doing what they're supposed to. And the whole time in the back of my head, I knew what the real problem was, but I wasn't willing to face it yet. So when you get told, you know, you're probably not going to be around more than another 30 days or so, then, then now, okay, now it's time. So I went home and I realized that no doctor can heal me. The only one is me. Now I had a lot of, you know, some Christian friends at the time, you know, you pray and God will help with this and God will help with that. But you know, I've, I've just never had any, I've never had any reason for God in my life or Jesus. I grew up in the Catholic church and it just didn't work for me. And it still doesn't work for me today, but that doesn't mean I, I belittle anybody who else does. I, I work with everybody. I don't care if you're Jewish, Muslim, you know, Catholic, Protestant, I don't care. I can work with you with what you need and not taint it with my personal view. Absolutely, you're working with the person. Absolutely. Exactly, exactly. So um, I, I started the meditation, and it was pretty funny <laughs> because I'd just fall asleep. <laughs> you, know, you just sit there in a comfortable chair with your eyes closed and focus on your breath but in a silent room. And you know, it's nice for a few minutes, and then you wake up an hour later. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there, done that. <laughs> so it's like, hey, I'd actually... Felt pretty okay. It's not. I don't feel as awful as I did, you know, a while just earlier today. So, so I tried doing it more and more. And then at this point, I'd closed down my construction company. I retired at 38 years old from general contracting, closed the company, and I became a stay-at-home dad. Uh, my wife still works. She's always had a job in, in medical. She's an ultrasound technician, uh, uh, exceptionally great at her job, and so she's always the kind that wants to work. So even when we could easily afford for her to not work, she still always she always wants to work. Uh, I super admire that in her. Um, but so now I'm a stay-at-home dad for about five years or so, and I'm sick as hell. Every you know my body's aching, my head's killing me. You know I never know when I'm going to have a blast of diarrhea. I mean, it was just awful, terrible, extreme fatigue. <laughs> I remember going grocery shopping for the family, 
And I'd come home, pull the truck into my, and my truck into the garage, and we had an air-conditioned garage living in Las Vegas. Because if you don't have, I didn't know anybody else who had an air-conditioned garage but me, but I'm a contractor, so I always did this stuff. Uh, it would be 150 degrees in your, in your garage if you didn't. So I had an air-conditioned garage. I'd pull the truck in there, leave the groceries in the truck, go inside, sit on my, my big, big man's lazy boy chair, and take a nap for an hour. Then I had the energy to actually bring the groceries in from the truck into the house and put them away. You were so exhausted That's from a simple the, exercise of grocery shopping. Exactly, exactly. And so that was something I had to plan my life around my fatigue. Uh, what can I do? Okay, oh, there is an event at our daughter's school on Thursday evening. So I have to actually start on Tuesday, sleeping more, resting more, doing less, less around the house, um, you know, to, so I could stockpile a little bit of energy for that event, and then I'd still be wiped out for the next two days after that. So your body is entirely exhausted. It's it's almost like fighting against itself. And now you had said your organs are starting to shut down. You have just a doctors are saying you have thirty days to live, and you find meditation. I find meditation, yeah. And it it uh, it took a you know. Just a couple of weeks, couple few, probably even only a few days, I started noticing the benefits of, of meditation. But after a couple of weeks, I could actually you know, almost start to quantify it, you know, really, really see it, really feel it a little, a few extra minutes of doing something before I got exhausted, right? Or not needing to sleep quite as long, you know, at night or take as many naps. And well, to me, that's progress. You know, I saw that and I felt it. Um, so I kept on nurturing that. So my, I'd bring the kids to school, my wife would go to work, I'd have the house to myself all day, and I would just just hang out around the house, listening maybe to some gentle spa-type music, and I'd do several meditations a day, and then I'd start adding you know, affirmation-type stuff to it and, and you know, visualizations and things like this. Actually, what was really funny is uh, sometime early 2000s, uh, I discovered the movie The Secret, the, mm-hmm. about the law of attraction. Yes. Uh, I literally would play that four or five times a day. It would just be on, a, I would, as soon as it was over, I'd hit play again. And while, no matter what I was doing, whether I was napping, cleaning the house, you know, cooking dinner, it would just cost, I'd have it play. So I, if I were to estimate, I'd probably watch that movie about a thousand times. Oh my goodness. And, and it, it really just resonated with me. Now I know a lot of people think it's a joke or it's funny. That's, hey, you're welcome to think and feel whatever you want. All I can tell you is that it really worked for me. Uh, so it gave me something to cling to. So, um, well, actually, I have to say I watched that, and I watched a lot of Scrubs. <laughs> <laughs> I used to love that show. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably seen every episode of Scrubs probably literally 20 or 30 times. It was I would watch all over and over and over again. Anybody who knew me back then, they, they, they'd attest to that. <laughs> you reiterate it line for yeah. line. <laughs> but um, anywho, working through all this stuff, it just... Uh, it, it, got me healthier and healthier and stronger. I remember a few years where my kids were little, they're three, four, five years old, and I couldn't play with them because I just wasn't strong enough to pick them up. And again, here again, I'm a big, strong strong man, man, but my muscles were so exhausted and fatigued and weak that I just couldn't pick up a a three-year-old child to play with her. So... I started to come out of that, though, which was really great, which I'm, I'm, I'm always very sad. And, 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 and it kind of it really hurtful to myself that my daughters, that they didn't have, they didn't have me as, 
you know, the dad that I wanted to be when they were that little. They just saw me laying on my chair, not knowing what was going to happen, which had to be terrifying for them. Uh, not knowing, I, I can only imagine that my wife and girls, they had to come to terms with themselves that at any moment they could walk into the house and find me dead in my chair. And, and you know, that was oh something that I thought about a lot. I, I can't do this to them. I can't do that. I have to be better. It's me. That's all me. And uh, along with that, I, I also adopted, and again, these are all two things that I learned, great lessons from my parents. My parents were all about, you owe me for your life. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't be here. So they were, they were constantly um, demanding love, demanding respect, and all this kind of thing, demanding kindness and thoughtfulness of them, but, but not giving any of these things. I realize that that's, that's, that's profound, profoundly opposite of what I want to be. I realized, you know, even before I got married, that it's up to me to earn love. It's up to me to earn, you know, that relationship. And then, of course, when you know, my wife and I get together, it's, it's every day I, I have to earn that. Uh, every day I want to be the best husband I can be. Every day I want to be the best father I can be. And it's up to me to be the best father, not up to them to be the best daughter. Because guess what? If I'm, a, if, I'm the, if I'm a great dad who's really putting in the effort and trying, my daughters are going to become great people. That simple. So we you know, do things together. We're, we're part of each other's lives. And they grew from that. All right. Well, I like to think that that philosophy had a lot to do with that, but hey, I might be I might be off kilter. I'm sure you're right, <laughs> but I, I don't don't know. We're gonna say yes. We'll say yes. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, back onto that that whole process of healing. Then uh, I discovered hypnosis. I went to a local hypnotist, and that went okay. It was a, I was a big masculine machismo kind of a man, you know, contractor and all this. Uh, used to get into bar fights and stuff like that. And here I am getting hypnosis from a very feminine, very female woman uh, with a super soft voice and sensibility. And it wasn't a good matchup, but I still felt the benefit. To where I found a, a man who he just happened to be a, just an arrogant dick. But he still was able to reach me on my level. Uh, what I, one thing I learned from him, and, uh, and, and I've nurtured a lot, uh, he, I mean, he didn't teach me this directly. I, I learn indirectly, by the way. You know, I'm not, I don't usually learn the lesson that's on the board. <laughs> I learn something <laughs> else about it. After you take it home and do it a few different ways and yeah, then you like it. I'm going to process and digest it my way. <laughs> well, what I learned from him was the importance as a hypnotist, which now as a life coach, uh, is to be provocative. Now, when I say that, everybody automatically thinks like that means sexually or something. No, definitely not. Uh, to provoke. I'm here to provoke your emotions and your way of thinking into a new possibility that you didn't have before. So I have to poke the bear sometime. I have to provoke you. So that's what he did for me. In the anger I had for him that I wanted to literally punch him a couple of times, I actually learned that that was powerful in making changes. Whether he was doing it directly or inadvertently, I don't know. But at the time, I was still too immature emotionally. Didn't want to see him anymore because I literally thought I was going to beat him up at some point. Uh, so then I went and, you know, then you do the uh, the thing where you order some, you know, this back then it was you'd send away and you'd 
order uh, uh, CDs of hypnosis, and I'd listen to those. <clears throat> actually, there's something that I very seldom ever talk about, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about. I, actually, I don't think I've ever talked about this to anyone. Uh, it's coming well, we to mind right now. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. I hope you can stay awake. Or trusting. For it. I hope you can stay awake for it. How about that? Um, when I was sent away for these DVDs, I'm sorry, CDs, not DVDs, of hypnosis, and I'd listen to them, and I'd start to feel progress. A couple of times, I then busted them up and threw them in the garbage. And after a couple of months, I'd order new CDs, listen to them, start to feel progress, then break them up and throw them in the garbage. And I went through this cycle a few times, and I didn't, at the time, I didn't understand why. But then I finally realized that it's like it was so uncomfortable yeah. for me to have a comfortable mind for me to have a calm and peaceful mind that I threw away the thing that was making me feel calm and peaceful. Oh, okay. That's not where my mind went with that. I was thinking like it was raising up childhood memories or something and it brought out, you know, emotions. And But it was something that it was actually, you had the benefit from you and you could feel it. Mm-hmm. And that scared you. Yeah. It, it jeopardized my, my basic programming. My basic programming was I don't deserve a happy life filled with peace and calm. You just gave me goosebumps all over for the second time in this interview. That's <laughs> incredibly powerful right there just to have mm-hmm. that. But now to be able to acknowledge it and, and recognize it for what it was. So I, that becomes a really something that important that I, I uh, even though I never talked about that, ex- that before. To, uh, but it but just I, shows, I, like you said, you deep programming that it's it's so core to your values and your beliefs and everything that is Mm -hmm. you and to have that altered it's it's it was uncomfortable beyond uncomfortable so when you when you take this this recent you know conversation about being provocative and as well as us you know basically sabotaging your own program see when people are making progress and then they do something to fuck it up they say oh i'm self-sabotaging no 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 The progress was the sabotage. The progress was the sabotage against your original program. Your original program is that you're not good enough. So you went outside of that, you tried to sabotage that program with success, started to see success, and then you went back to the originally scheduled program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it's the reverse of what people think. Thank you for listening. And check back next week for another episode with Ken Dombrowski as we continue this conversation. Help promote this show by subscribing and following this podcast and leave a five-star review so we can continue to get incredible guests as we dive further into the mind-body-spirit connection.